This morning we're going to be back in our uh, study in the book of Genesis. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 20, uh, we're going to look at this uh, last story before the birth of Isaac. And this story uh, fits in the pattern that we've seen in Abram's life, Abraham's life of uh, one chapter. You have this great faithful act of Abraham in the very next chapter. You have this terrible lack of faith in the patriarch Abraham. And so uh, we come to that last lack of faith, you might say, in Abraham before Isaac is born today. And I, I want to apologize before I get started. I've got a cough drop in my mouth and hopefully I won't spit it out at you at some point during the sermon. Uh, but I just got a little congestion that I'm, I'm struggling with. So I, I hope that that'll Clear me up enough that I can speak clearly enough for you. So um, let's go to the Lord. In, uh, well, actually, let's read the passage together and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and uh, we'll get into the sermon. So uh, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 20, verse one, and go through the whole uh, chapter of chapter 20. God's word says, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you are uh, because of the woman whom you have taken. She is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in, the, in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return, to the, man's, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? Abraham said, I did, did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants 
and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham said to God, uh, man, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I had a rough time reading that for some reason, but uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we know that you are indeed the God who protects your promise. You are the one who, though we are faithless, remains faithful. And so, God, we ask that you would bless us as we study from your word, that you would give us understanding. Lord, indeed, give me words to speak clearly. Help me to overcome the little bit of congestion that I have to be able to speak your truths in this place and time. Father, I pray that we would all be convicted by your scripture, that we would be called to a sense of faithfulness and and a, a calling of faithfulness as we walk in this world. Father, bless me now and bless us now as we hear from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, security, if you think about it, the issue of security is a concern that we spend a good bit of time and a good bit of money thinking and working towards, uh, whether it's our security financially, uh, you know, our security for our retirement, our security in our, the insurance we buy, or the, the way that we organize our lives, or the places to which we send our children, the people we allow to take our children and, and watch over them, the schools we pick for our children, even the towns that we decide to live in, a lot of times those are decided, they, we make those decisions based on security and whether or not it's a safe place to live, whether or not it's a safe action to take. Uh, we may buy a firearm, we may buy a security system, we may buy uh, locks, whatever it is, we spend a great deal of time and concern on security. In fact, uh, at a, in a broader sense, security is a major concern for us as citizens in our nation. We spend a great deal of time as a nation debating over national security. And uh, really, national security in one way or the, another is the only legitimate concern that we see as right when we consider whether we should go to war with one nation or another. Usually a president will justify his decision to go to war based on the national security of the country. Well, security has uh, branched out from not just our personal concern and our national concern, but security has become a paramount concern for Christians in America today. You can see this in the uncomfortable considerations that many larger churches have to now make with regards to whether or not they should have a security team, whether or not they should arm them, and how to provide for the safety of the congregation. In addition, due to the rise of secularism in the United States, many Christians feel that the church is increasingly marginalized and threatened. 
This has led some Christian leaders like Robert Jeffries and Paula White and Jerry Falwell Jr. to take up politics for the sake of protecting the church. Paula White said in an interview, speaking of the need to support the re-election of President Trump, we're going to lose the freedom of America soon. In that same interview, Jim Baker worried, this election is so important, it just scares me what is going on. Jerry Falwell Jr. has taken action by establishing a political think tank called the Falkirk Center. Part of its mission statement says, Bemoaning the rise of leftism is no longer enough, and turning the other cheek in our personal relationships with our neighbors as Jesus taught while abdicating our responsibilities on the cultural battlefield is no longer sufficient. I want you to notice the words that were used in those quotes, just in those few quotes that I had, I gave you. The words lose, scared, and battlefield. These words and others like fear and war are often used by these, these and other evangelical leaders to call for the support of one candidate or another or for one policy or another. But brothers and sisters, the fear of a loss of security is nothing new. In fact, the theme of living by sight versus living by faith is a major theme that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. If you remember, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and built a city to protect himself from his relatives. Lamech called down a curse on anyone who would harm him for killing a little boy. In Noah's day, uh, the people of Noah's day consorted with fallen angels to gain technology and power and long life. The people of Babel built a tower to avoid being scattered. Lot looked towards the Jordan River Valley and saw the protective walls of the city of Sodom and chose that land over the land of promise. Even Abraham was drawn into this allurement of security. Just after receiving the promise in Genesis chapter 12, he goes down to Egypt to escape a famine that had come on the land of Canaan. And we find there that he had a deal worked out with his wife that when he went into the land of Egypt, that she was to say that he, she was his sister so that he might avoid being killed by these covetous pagans in whose land he found himself in. And now in Genesis chapter 20, we find almost the exact repeat of that same story. In fact, you find Abraham using this same technique to protect himself by offering up his sister as a, a, a distraction so that he might uh, survive in a foreign land. And we find that Abraham has wandered into the southwest area of the land of the Philistines. And there are three aspects of this story that I want you to notice today. The first aspect of this story is I want you to remember that this story comes on the heels of an important episode that starts back in chapter 18. Remember back in chapter 18, we find that God comes to Abraham and he comes with these two angels on his side, by his side. And he comes and Abraham, remember, scrambles around and he makes this huge feast for God and these angels. 
And in this story of Abraham's hospitality, we see Abraham presented to us as the chief example, the greatest example of hospitality. And not only is there a theme of hospitality in that chapter, but also remember that God reminded Abraham and Sarah that he would be faithful to his promise. And he told Sarah that or told Abraham to tell Sarah that this time next year he would give her a child. Remember, she laughs about that and he he knows that she's laughed. And God tells Sarah that nothing is impossible with God. God would protect the covenant promise that he had made, even though it seemed impossible. And then in chapter 19, we find that God sends these two angels to Sodom to find Lot and to get him out. And we find there also this theme of hospitality as the men of Sodom violate every known norm of hospitality and instead of showing hospitality, they seek to ravage the two visitors within their walls. God totally annihilates the city, but in his covenant protection, he delivers Lot and his family from the danger. I say all of this to point out that these things have to be in the back of Abraham's mind as he goes into Philistine territory. He has seen what happens in big cities. He has seen the lack of hospitality and their utter disregard for the law and a lack of respect for human life. But while all of that is on his mind, he has forgotten the faithfulness of God. He has forgotten that God has kept his promise to Abraham time and again. And in this, Abraham now becomes the man of sight. So as he is entering the city of Gerar, he tells Sarah to pull out the old trick from the playbook that they used in Egypt and to say that she is his sister. Now, don't miss the the tragedy of this. Don't miss how tragic this really is. Remember, God has just promised Sarah that this time next year she will have a son by Abraham. And the, at the very next chapter or the very next story, the very next hint of danger, Abraham is willing to throw all of that away for the sake of his own neck. He's willing to give away the promise to give away the hope of the promise of a son by his wife so that he might avoid harm in the land of the Philistines. He is once again trusting in human methods and in human wit instead of trusting in the promise of God. If nothing is impossible for God, then surely his own protection is included in that. The second thing I want you to notice about this text is notice that God has full control over this situation, even though Abraham has absolutely none. Now, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, sees that Abraham has this beautiful sister and he takes her into his harem. But as soon as he does this, he begins to have problems. And we're not told exactly what these problems are other than the fact that we're told that all of his family, all of his concubines, all of his wives, and even him 
his himself are become infertile. They become unable to conceive. And not only that, but after they become infertile, God appears to Abimelech in a dream. And in that dream, God reveals that not only is he the cause of the infertility that Abimelech and his family are experiencing, but that God is about to kill Abimelech if he does not return Sarah to Abraham. Now, I want you to notice two things in this exchange between God and Abimelech. The first thing I want you to notice is that Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham. Abimelech recognizes that what he was about to do in, in accidentally taking another man's wife is a great sin. He recognizes it to be a sin. Secondly, he recognizes that God is just and asks whether God would judge an innocent people because of the lie of Abraham. And Abimelech fears God and immediately repents doing everything that God requires of him. In this story, here's the irony of this story. In this story, the pagan king is a better example of Christian faithfulness than the man of faith, Abraham. The pagan king that Abraham expected to kill him at the drop of a hat is a better example of Christian faithfulness than the man of faith, Abraham himself. Also notice that God is not just the God of Abraham. He is the Lord over all people. Most people of that day believed that gods were regional. And if you left your region and went to another land, then your God might not have any power in that land to which you went. This may actually explain why Abraham had thought that he had to take on the tactics that he took on because he might have believed that God didn't have any power in the land of the Philistines. And yet, God is still powerful even over the house of the king of this foreign land. So the final point that I want you to notice from this text is that God keeps his promises even when the man of faith is faithless. Abraham was willing to give away the promise of God for the sake of security. And God is the only one who acts in this story to save the promise. Abraham ditches his wife at the first hint of danger. Sarah is willing to go along with the plot just to save her husband and to save her own neck, I imagine. No human character in this story cares anything about the promise that God just made two chapters back. But yet God is faithful to save the promise and to keep the promise alive. Abraham is not the only character in Scripture who was willing to compromise the promise of God for the sake of security. If you think about the story of Israel itself, time and again, they were willing to make a covenant with one pagan nation or another, even willing to make a covenant with Egypt, the land that had enslaved them, so that they might gain the protection of these foreign countries against their enemies. 
It seems that even the greatest examples that we have set up for us in the Old Testament are ultimately willing to throw away the promise of God for security. But then there's Jesus. Jesus lived a life that rested solely on God's ability to fulfill his promises. Think about it. At his birth, the powers of this world raged against him as King Herod sent soldiers to kill every son in the city of Bethlehem. And yet God protected him and led his family away into Egypt. When tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he rejected the power of Satan to give him all the kingdoms of men and instead chose the path of God that led to the cross so that he might gain the power over sin and death. Even on the night of his betrayal, he rebuked Peter for chopping off the ear of a servant of the priest and went so far as to restore the ear instead of fighting back. Jesus offered no defense at his trial and he hung defenseless on the cross while his accusers mockingly called on him to come down if he really was the Messiah. And yet, the true power and security of Jesus is found on that following Sunday as the angel appeared before a battalion of Roman soldiers, rolled away a two-ton stone Uh, away from the tomb and then sat on it, displaying the power of God, not just over the kingdoms of this world, but over death itself. Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, provided a security that this world cannot offer. We may think that we can find protection for our lives through a firearm or a security system or the right town or the right laws or the right political candidate, But the truth is that none of those can save us from the judgment to come. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 through 7, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. The one we really should fear in this life and in the life to come is the one who has authority over over our souls, and that is God himself. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no more fear, not even of death. Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, defeated death and hell for us so that even the judgment of God is satisfied in his sacrifice. Therefore, we can come to God in faith and in obedience, knowing that he loves us and he wants us to be a part of his kingdom and his family. You see, friend, you may think that you can provide security for your life by preparing in one way or another. But you ultimately cannot protect yourself from the greatest threat of all, and that is the judgment of God. No amount of preparation can save you from that. But Jesus has overcome death and hell for you. He has taken the wrath of God for you, and because of that, you can live without fear, knowing that your life is secure 
in him. Brothers and sisters, we are called to faithfully hold to the promise of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest, I worry for the soul of the American church today because we seem so fearful that we are willing to turn to earthly measures to secure our safety. And in so doing, we are giving away the promise of God. Now, understanding this, I'm not saying that I want to tell you how to vote come November. I don't care who you vote for. What I do care about is why you vote. What I do care about is the concern and the heart behind why you vote. If you vote for one candidate or another because he or she aligns with the policies and the virtues that you believe in, then vote for that person. I don't care. But if you vote because you believe that that person is somehow going to deliver the church of God from the attacks of Satan, then your concerns and your priorities are misplaced. There is only one leader who has authority over the church. There is only one leader who has authority to deliver the church to the kingdom of God and to ultimately provide and protect for his people, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the only hope of our security and, our, and the fulfillment of our promise. We must be a witness in this world of that hope, regardless of how this country goes, regardless of where we end up. We must be a witness of the hope that goes beyond just this day and age and goes to the kingdom that is to come. I hope that we as individual believers and as the church in America can live as a witness to our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of what persecution or hardship might come in America because of it. But there is a sense of assurance in this passage as well today. Even though Abraham the man of faith was willing to give away the promise for his own security. God was still faithful. And brothers and sisters, even though so often we are still faithless, both in our return to sin and in our lack of trust, yet God is still faithful. Take heart from this story that the promise that God has made to save and to restore you does not rest on your abilities to secure it or in your consistent faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of the one who made the promise and the one who secures it through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider today the, the faithfulness of God and your faithfulness in our lives, Lord, we're reminded that our ultimate hope is not in one political candidate. Our ultimate hope is not in our measures of security that we might carry out in our home and in our family. Our ultimate hope of security and deliverance from this world is found in Jesus Christ. Father, may we indeed consider the, the politics of this country. May we consider our duty as citizens of this country and may we take it seriously. May we pray for our... our uh, leaders and may we seek justice in our country 
But may we not be so devoted to it that we think that it is our only hope. Rather, may we remember that our only hope ultimately rests in you. For you are the God who delivers us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. So, Father, bless us now as we close this time in song. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.